0: Welcome to this Purdue Engineering podcast, featuring research that addresses critical issues related to societal resilience in the face of crises and efforts to engineer long-term solutions for a more robust future. Hi, I'm Spencer Dorsch, a senior in the School of Aeronautics and Astronautics, which here at Purdue we call AAE, and I'm an ambassador to the program. We'll be speaking with Carson Sleyball, an assistant professor in AAE, who joined the faculty in 2015. We'll hear his origin story in aerospace engineering, learn what his lab did to get a noise complaint that went straight to the university president, and get the backstory behind the big friendly flame. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Professor Slabal. When did you first have a fascination with aerospace?
1: So I grew up as a garage kid and was always interested in mechanical things, had go-karts and quads, and I was fortunate enough to grow up on some land with some acreage and stuff, So. I was building engines for my go-kart and stuff like that, even when I was about six years old. And my dad kind of inspired that interest in me. Yeah, that carried on Uh, as I grew up. I I bought my first car when I was 14, it's an old muscle car and I restored it and it it was good. So I always had this interest in mechanical things. So I actually thought that I was just gonna work in motorsports or in the automotive industry. I ended up getting an internship with Lockheed Martin missiles and fire control in, in Orlando, just near near UCF where I was doing my undergraduate work. And I kind of got a taste of what industry R&D looks like there, got to know a few people. I, my uh, placement there wasn't in that area, but I realized pretty quickly that I wanted to be in advanced R&D. I thought that they, they really did some, some really interesting work and that actually got me Invested with a with a professor at UCF and started doing some undergraduate research to maybe prepare my my resume a little bit better to get into an R&D group when I graduated, and so my my work as an undergraduate researcher was in actually turbine heat transfer for gas turbine engines. That was really my first exposure to aerospace topics and um, aerospace propulsion systems, and I realized that there was some really high tech work being done there and that just inspired me to then pursue graduate school and, and keep going. So I actually have all, all three of my degrees are in mechanical engineering, um, but I've always done research on aerospace problems and now I'm, I'm teaching in the School of Aeronautics and Astronautics. So I just kind of followed that path.
0: So as you said, you received your master's from Central Florida. You actually came to Purdue for your PhD work in mechanical engineering. How much did Maurice J. Zucrow Laboratories factor into the decision, and do you remember your initial impressions of the facility?
1: Yeah, Zucrow is a really world unique place. Facilities are amazing. They've they've been built up since the '40s. There, there's just there's nowhere else like that with that kind of history. It's, what makes the Zucrow really tick is the people that are out there, starting from. Rob McGuire is the lead machinist out there all the way to, you know, Scott Meyer, who's the managing director and everyone in between is a very dedicated and talented group of individuals there that just not only make the student experience unique and and just incredibly productive in terms of learning and research output, but also it's just they, they create a, an environment where you can take on any challenge. Uh, it's not only the infrastructure but it's, it's the people. I, my, my whole career since coming to Purdue has been shaped by the, the culture and the capabilities of, of Zucro Laboratories. And that's what enables us to take on projects like this uh, laser ignition of cryogenic propellants stuff that we're doing with, with Stanford now. That's an extremely tough problem that most experimentalists would not want to take on but, but we're, we're going to do it and I think we have a really good shot at being successful because of these things so yeah going back to the very beginning it's it's always been been about Zucro labs for me
0: after completing your PhD here you were a senior researcher at Zucro for a year before joining AAE as an assistant professor were you already set on propulsion and combustion research then
1: uh, the focus on propulsion and combustion was really solidified back at, at Central Florida as an undergraduate I was doing this this turbine heat transfer work and you know, it was it was really interesting but I kept Asking a lot of questions from people I knew in industry and and even my my advisor at the time, you know, about what goes on in the combustor, which you know a gas turbine engine, that's what's upstream of the turbine. is what creates all the problems for the turbine heat transfer people. It was always like, oh, that's that's black magic that occurs upstream of of the turbine. You know, the combustors have have all these complexities and stuff. And um, you know, when I hear about something like that, instead of running away, I run towards it. And that's That's really where that all started. So I continued the work that I was doing as an undergraduate through my master's degree at Central Florida, but I was already set on on doing propulsion and combustion work for my PhD at that point.
0: You've done a lot of research with rotating detonation engines and also tackled combustion instability. As you mentioned earlier, you have a really exciting project with Stanford with laser ignition and rocket engines that people can read about in the upcoming Aerogram next month.
1: We work in this area of combustion physics, which is that's relevant to engine applications. So high pressures, high levels of turbulence, real, real propellants as, that we use actually in rocket engines. Um, it's the capabilities at Zucro Labs that let us do that, but it's largely unexplored territory for researchers. Just because it is so hard to effectively pull a combustor out of a full-scale engine and run it in your lab under you know, controlled conditions and say anything useful about it, has historically been quite focused on you know, what I jokingly refer to as the glorified Bunsen burners and the fluid mechanics and the chemistry that really make these processes work are inseparable. You can't distill them down to simplified configurations for your laboratory without giving up on some of the physics. Zucrow lets us look at real engine processes still under controlled laboratory environments, but at the right pressures, the right levels of turbulence, these things like that. And so we discover many things using you know new laser-based measurement techniques and things like that. For example, with rotating detonation engines, we recently demonstrated for the first time operability of, of a large-scale rotating detonation engine with natural gas and, and air as the propellants. That was largely considered a propellant combination that, that wouldn't yield any sort of stable detonation um, that could be used in a practical device, uh, but we were able to do it because Basically we could run at the real scales we, we thought you know would would make one of these things operate. So we had to go to very high pressures, very high mass flow rates. Um, we did get a noise complaint straight to the president's office for just how loud things were. I was actually I was picking up pizza for my team one night at Papa John's over at Purdue West and I walked out to my truck and I could just hear the engine firing like clear as day as I was standing right next to it. And that's that's probably about it two miles away <laughs> so it's pretty impressive that we can do that kind of thing but it that's just one case where it became an enabling for the folks who don't know what a rotating detonation engine is we can step it back to the beginning as it turns out there's, there's really two ways that you can burn a fuel and an oxidizer um, to, to release heat in an engine one way is where the flame is propagating into the propellant mixture at a subsonic speed uh, we call that a deflagration a deflagration is what you see when you light a candle, it's your stovetop burner, it's what's in a gas turbine engine, as it turns out, those are all deflagrations. And the, the alternative is uh, through a process called a detonation where the flame starts to move so quickly that it generates a, a shock wave in front of it and the flame is coupled to the shock wave in, in some sense and uh, it propagates at a supersonic speed. It can, it can move at Mach 3 or, or higher depending on what you're burning. And as it turns out, there's some implicit thermodynamic benefits to combustion with a detonation versus a deflagration. The challenge there is that you have an explosion, uh, very much like a bomb going off. And in order to take advantage of those thermodynamic benefits, you have to figure out how to trap that explosion in your engine and, well, not have it blow your engine up. So that is the key thing that we're trying to do. And for a long time, people have tried different ways of achieving this end. And rotating detonation engines are, I think, the first technologically viable invention or device or approach that we could actually see integrated into into a real device in I'll conservatively say the next 20 years or so hopefully we can accelerate it a little bit more than that and we're doing everything we can to, in my lab to make that happen so going back to this project with stanford where we're focused on laser ignition for rocket engines. This is an interesting project. It's funded by the National Nuclear Security Administration. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with nuclear security. What's interesting about it to them is that it's a very complex problem and it's gonna be very hard to predict the outcome, this physical process mathematically. And so that's that's really the motivation for us to pursue this together with our with our colleagues at Stanford. So we'll be doing all the experiments at ZUCRO Labs and Stanford will be running some of the largest computations that that have ever been run on these these DOE supercomputers that don't even exist yet. They're called exascale machines, meaning that they can perform 10 to the 18th mathematical operations per second. These are machines that, that require entire power plants just to keep the computer running. One other interesting part about this is our Stanford colleagues have actually written new languages for uh, for their computer codes to be able to run on machines of this scale. They had to start and write new languages to be able to run these, these computations. So it's a very cool team to be working with on such a really big problem and to be the, the one experimental group that's providing the validation data for some seriously cutting edge computations. Our punchline for this project is the, the 60 million kilometer trip back from Mars starts with a 10 nanosecond laser pulse the experiment that we're going to build in my laboratory is going to have injection of liquid oxygen and gaseous methane and those two propellants are going to mix with each other there's going to be some really cool droplet flashing and evaporation processes uh, that are occurring just downstream of the injector and then at a precisely timed moment we're going to deliver a high intensity pulse of electromagnetic radiation that's focus down to such a small region with such high intensity to create a plasma kernel and the interaction of that plasma kernel with that fuel and air mixture at that space should cause ignition to happen, depends on when and uh, where it's delivered. We will measure as much as we possibly can about the flow before and after that happens and uh, it's up to our friends at Stanford to predict whether the rocket's going to light, or whether it's not going to light. So that's an interesting problem that we'll be we'll be working on over the next five years or so. We're we're just really getting started on that now, but this is going to involve a pretty volatile propellant set. Liquid oxygen is uh, is a unique capability to to Zucker Labs. Period. There there isn't going to be another academic lab that that has that sort of propellant available, uh, especially you know at rocket conditions. That made us very competitive for this uh, large scale project.
0: That sounds really exciting. Uh, what is the most exciting part of your research and what keeps you interested in the work?
1: Yeah, so so the new discoveries for sure and working on new technologies like this. Uh, but the other thing that I think really motivates me to is working with students, my graduate students in my lab. Um, I, I would I would even say that as a faculty member um, at, at a university like this, working with students really, you need to get a lot of joy out of that um, you know otherwise you know there's a lot of other settings you could go into and do cutting edge research but really um, working with students in my lab, uh, especially my graduate students are is is really um, one of the best parts of my job. They you know they bring new perspective to problems um, and uh, really really I'm just always amazed at, at how clever my students can be when, when they when they think about things they they have these days a lot more time to think about their problem than I do and um, so it, it really is it really is exciting when to, to see them pick up on um, on some new physics or some so see some things in data that that, that I just you know I, I can't see anymore and then they they generate and run with that and have new ideas for us to pursue and Um, That really is one one of the most exciting things for me and most motivating factors.
0: Now, there was a story in the AeroGram last year about your industry collaborations, and you talked about how important establishing those relationships are. What have you found to be beneficial about those industry partnerships, and what opportunities is that research providing to AAE students?
1: One of the guiding principles for my lab and for our research is that we work from the laboratory to the engine, you know, going back to our to our glorified Bunsen burners. You know, a lot of times, to we we can get very focused on the fundamental physics of flames or detonation propagation or things like this, and it's easy to kind of lose track of where this where this stuff is going. And so, our industry collaborations. Are very beneficial because they they help us to kind of ground our problems in the real world and make sure that we know what we're working towards where we're where we're actually trying to take these technologies or what problems are we really trying to solve you know the industry problems really matter because that's where the rubber hits the road not only with the technologies that we seek to develop but also that's where our students go i think it's especially important for our research progress or for our discoveries to to always kind of have in mind where, where these discoveries are gonna actually find some use in the real world. Often, when I work with companies like aviation or SpaceX or Aerojet Rocketdyne. The industry work at practical scales and and our interactions with the engineers at these companies that are really trying to to build new cutting-edge devices, often that actually inspires new research problems, even at the fundamental level. So it kind of goes both ways that we feed from the laboratory up to the engine, but often actually the engine problems the real world problems feed back down into new fundamental problems that we need to go resolve in in my lab as well that's the research aspect or the research driven importance of industry collaborations but on the student side the students then also get the experience of, of seeing technology transfer take place and also they work on problems that are relevant to industry so one that makes them more attractive to you know, any of these companies when they when they graduate and, and are looking for jobs in a fast paced R and D environment, um, they, they already have the skills they need to just hit the ground running. Beyond just the technical knowledge, they they actually have the the skills to work on problems that are so complex that it's, it's not it's not a canned research problem where they're told what to do and, and they make some incremental change. Often your problems are more complex. And so it's more important for them to develop the skills to go you know, find answers that, that really aren't even available in technical literature and stuff. So it's, it's, it's good from, from both those angles.
0: You've had some pretty interesting design build test projects. What are some of your favorites and some you know the students really enjoyed?
1: The big friendly flame is, is definitely a favorite. I, I teach propulsion design build test, which is a graduate level class. We have a small population of undergraduates that also take that as their senior design. We usually have a few projects for them to choose from based on their interest. And uh, a few years ago, I was at a barbecue with uh, with Professor Anderson and a few few other uh, faculty members. And yeah, Professor Anderson suggested that, you know, maybe I should do you know build a big flame for Burning Man. And that, that sounded pretty interesting to me. I didn't really have any idea how we were gonna gonna execute on all this or what the requirements were, things like that. But but I was hooked at that point. So the backstory there is that. Professor Anderson has some connections with a group that, that goes to Burning Man and brings a lot of you know, different exhibits to that. And they like interesting, uh, we'll call it fire art. One of the projects that they were interested in doing with us was have a fire truck that shoots flames. They basically just wanted the biggest flame that we could possibly produce. and. So we started, you know, looking into the rules. There are some rules for, for what you can take to Burning Man. One of the important ones is that if you're gonna have a big flame effect, it has to basically work on propane. You can't use a liquid fuel. And there's there's good reasons for that. If you if you eject a liquid fuel up into the air and, and don't burn everything um, or have a misfire or something, then that fuel comes back down on all these, these people around the, the device, and that's an undesirable outcome. So what you can do instead is use propane and it tends to, at at atmospheric pressure, it flashes to a vapor, so that makes it safe. We started this design build test project. It was one of, I think, three projects we did that year. And there was some pretty serious uncertainty in in how we were gonna be able to achieve a a real flame. So we just started very quickly with pulling together some spare parts from around Zucra Labs, from other rocket experiments that we'd done. We found valves, we had a data acquisition and control system that we could pull off the shelf. and, And we just set up a prototype out in a field next to Zucrow Labs and we're firing this thing off and trying different ideas and so we first started with just a big you know, gas propane flame ejection just like a flamethrower and we could only get a flame height that was about I think our maximum was 10 12 foot something like that which you know big, pretty big flame but now we are going for we were shooting for 100 foot so then we, we went back to the drawing board and, and just realized there was, there was no way we were gonna be able to do this in the gas phase. So we came up with a way to, to eject liquid propane instead. It can carry a lot more mass that way in a liquid form. It's obviously way more dense. And uh, because of that increased density, you get a lot more momentum too. So the first time we tried actually ejecting liquid, uh, there's a lot more that went into the torch design and stuff to make sure that was gonna be safe. But once we did it, our first flame was about 60 foot tall and we were standing over hundred foot away and the flame radiation was so much that the cell phone video from that's you know the audio is pretty funny um but it was clear that we'd figured out a way to to make this work so so my the, the students on that project were awesome and they they got really excited and we ended up reaching a maximum flame height of just under 130 feet that was really cool i got a call from the air traffic control tower at the airport about that too ejecting fireballs near an airport it turns out is i just caution you before you do that just <laughs> so anyways at the end of all this we had a working prototype and then the rest of the semester was spent uh packaging it up and getting into something that could be hoisted on top of uh the fire truck that they call heathen and uh driven around in the desert we made all that work it went to burning man and uh it was a was a great success so that one was pretty cool and we've done a few other interesting projects like um we were looking at uh, combustion instabilities in um and rocket engines for a couple of different projects. These things are, you know, side projects for my lab that I'm interested to run through this class. So students will design an ejector, or design other kinds of changes to experiments that we're doing on the research side. And we have published a few journal papers out of the class and stuff too. So students that are really interested in doing something wild, like, you know, big flame, we can, we, we do those kinds of projects and also some more research driven design build test projects also have been quite successful.
0: What advice would you share with potential undergrad and graduate students who might be interested in working in your area of research?
1: I would say start very early and work very hard. Maybe that's obvious, but my own personal career path was largely formed by early undergraduate research experience and that not only helped me develop the skills that I needed and build up the experience I needed to get into graduate school, but it also helped me define or maybe resolve what, what I wanted to do in my career. And uh, research and development's not for everybody, but it's, it's for you, it's, it's, it's good to find out early. One thing that is for certain is that R&D in an aerospace environment is an extremely competitive career path to take. It's competitive to get into graduate school, it's competitive to get into these very small groups um, that work on the really hard, but also really, you know, attractive problems for new graduates. And to be competitive for those positions, it's simply going to be a lot of hard work. There's no way around that. When you graduate uh, and get a job in one of those positions, it's, it's still going to be hard work and it's, it's never going to change. So, um, so just be ready for that. And yeah, you'll be fine.
0: Thank you, Professor Sleba. for your time and discussing your exciting research with us. Be sure to listen to our other Purdue Engineering podcasts and see the show notes on the podcast website for more about the big friendly flame and additional information about the School of Aeronautics and Astronautics at Purdue.